Hi and welcome to this latest episode from 1914-1918war.com In this episode we'll do our usual roundup of some upcoming anniversaries and I'm going to start a detailed look at the Battle of Dogger Bank and I expect that that will take the next two episodes up. Right, as always, uh, please review this somewhere out there in the uh, internet. That would be very helpful. And uh, let's crack on. Everything you hold for files is at stake. We start this week with our review of some notable anniversaries that are coming up over the next two weeks. Uh, so, uh, November the 26th, 1914, 793 sailors were killed when HMS Bulwark uh, exploded while loading ammunition at Sheerness. Only 12 survivors from that uh, accident. And also in 1914, uh, German aircraft fitted with wireless radio sets uh, fly for the first time to assist in their reconnaissance role. Uh, that's on December the 1st. And on uh, also on December the 1st, Austro-Hungarian troops occupy Belgrade and they'll hold on to that for just a fortnight. Jumping ahead to uh, 1915, on the 27th of November, British pacifists many of whom were Quakers, formed the No Conscription Fellowship, pledging to refuse military service. And also on the 27th of November, uh, 1915, a hundred men were drowned uh, when floods swept through the defences at Gallipoli. And then, uh, jumping forward a bit, uh, December the 5th, 1915, the Siege of Kut begins in Mesopotamia as the Turks surround British forces. Uh, the town and the uh, force in there will hold out for 147 days before finally surrendering. Then jumping ahead to uh, 1916, on November the 28th, the first German fixed-wing aircraft bombing raid on London takes place when a seaplane bombs Kens Kensington, uh, wounding six people. And uh, on December the 6th, 1916, David Lloyd George, a remarkable politician... Uh, with a very colourful life, uh, replaced Asquith as the British Prime Minister, and uh, and he'll stay there in office for the rest of the war now. And now, moving ahead into 1917, on the 30th of November, the Germans attack around Bourlon Wood, overcoming the British front line, taking three miles, capturing 6,000 men and 158 guns. And uh, also on the 30th of November, Allied shipping losses for the month of November were the lowest of the year as the convoy system yields dividends with uh, 126 ship ships sunk during that month, uh, 56 of whom were British. And uh, December the 1st, the Bolshevik Armistice Commission leaves Petrograd to travel to meet representatives of the Central Powers at Brest-Litovsk. And uh, what a difficult time they'll have there. Of course, this would have ramifications for the Western Front, and on the 6th of December, the British War Cabinet was warned that the Russian armistice will mean that 900,000 German troops can transfer from the Eastern to the Western Front. That's enough anniversaries for now. Uh, let's get on with the uh, main part of the podcast. The Battle of Dogger Bank, the first dreadnought battle. 
The Battle of Dogger Bank took place on the 24th of January 1915 in the middle of the North Sea and marked the first major naval encounter between the British and Germans of the First World War. With the element of surprise, a numerical advantage in ships and heavier gunnery weights all resting with the British, there was no reason why a crushing victory shouldn't have been achieved. Possessing the most powerful navy in the world, British naval doctrine only required her to maintain her lead to keep control of the oceans. Whilst a decisive action against the German navy would achieve this goal, it was not the only way to achieve victory. Simply keeping the Germans bottled up in their ports and unable to use their navy would suffice. However, with the long history of naval achievement, it was difficult for the British to ignore the possibility of a Nelsonian decisive victory. British grand strategy required the French and the Russians to engage the Germans in land combat on the European continent, while the powerful British navy maintained a blockade to starve the Germans of essential supplies and hastening the end of the war. Around the turn of the century, with the advent of new weaponry, the traditional close blockade became unviable. It was no longer possible to maintain ships off the enemy coastline to prevent her shipping from setting sail. The advent of mines, torpedoes and submarines meant that station-keeping ships could become easy victims rather than a way of maintaining the blockade. This called into question the value of the dreadnoughts, into which vast sums of human and monetary capital had been sunk. If submarines, which were cheaper, might neutralise the great capital ships, surely this was the way forward. However, no country seemed to be willing to abandon the desire to build great big ships, and this desire was shared by the public. A policy of smaller, more effective ships could have been followed. Unable to abandon the idea of close blockade entirely, a hybrid plan was explored that would use destroyers in close blockade, but the problem of supplying these ships exposed one of the Navy's limitations. As a part of the British Empire, the Royal Navy relied on its extensive network of land bases to provide refuelling facilities and therefore didn't maintain sufficient ocean-going colliers to carry coal to ships whilst they were out of port. With the requirement to maintain destroyers on station, the need for these ships to refuel was exposed, and it was calculated that a three-shift system was needed, with one shift on station, one returning to base to take on coal, and the last shift sailing back to relieve the blockading shift, a plan that the Royal Navy just didn't have enough ships to carry out. As an alternative, the British flirted briefly with a plan to seize Heligoland just off the coast of Germany to act as a coaling base. Ironically, Heligoland had been a British possession until 1890 when it was swapped with Germany for Zanzibar, but this plan was also abandoned and the Royal Navy slowly shifted to the much more sensible policy of distant blockade. The distant blockade would use the United Kingdom's geographical position to bottle up the Germans in the North Sea by patrolling the sea routes across the North Sea above Scotland and through the English Channel. This strategy worked for the blockade, but it did leave targets such as towns on the eastern coast of the United Kingdom uh, on the North Sea vulnerable to German raids, but this could be countered by having forces stationed on the east coast. The adoption of the policy of distant blockade meant that Britain could choose whether to fight or not, and with the luxury of only fighting on their own terms, this increased the odds 
that the British could maintain their preeminent naval position. To maintain a distant blockade, the main British fleet would be anchored at Scarpa Flow, ready to foray out should the Germans attempt to break the blockade. And when the day came, the Navy's tacticians expected that the two opposing fleets would string out in two lines in parallel to each other and would slug it out with long-range gunnery. Ideally, in the style of Nelson at Trafalgar, the British fantasised that they would edge ahead of the opposing fleet and then cross the T, swinging across the head of the enemy line so that their broadside would be countered by a limited number of enemy guns. The distant blockade required a number of factors to coincide. The fleet required intelligence about enemy intentions so that they could move out and engage them. Gunnery needed to be up to scratch to allow the decisive blows to be struck, and the ships in the fleet needed to be coordinated and controlled so that manoeuvres could be completed. Finally, the ships had to have sufficient armour to withstand gunfire from enemy ships. The Battle of the Dogger Bank was to reveal shortcomings in all of these areas. As with all events in war, what has gone before casts a long shadow, and the Battle of Dogger Bank is no exception. A previous encounter, the Battle of Heligoland Bight, a small engagement that the British clearly won, provides context. Here the Royal Navy planned to attack regular German patrols that monitored the waters on the northeast German coast and sent a force of light cruisers, submarines and battle cruisers to carry out the operation. The action resulted in German losses of three light cruisers and a torpedo boat in exchange for no British losses. The British scored a clear victory in this encounter and this meant that serious failings were not addressed. After all, if you've won a battle... Why would you need to change anything? Difficulties in communication, identification of friendly forces and gunnery, with shells failing to detonate and failing to penetrate German armour, were, as a consequence, not addressed. Additionally, the battle took place at shorter ranges than later battles, and this flattered the British gunnery and concealed serious deficiencies in accuracy. Adding to the British ability to maintain their blockade, was their excellent intelligence-gathering capability, particularly signals intelligence. At the beginning of the war, the British had preemptively cut the Germans' telegraphic cables, and as a consequence of this, the Germans tended to use wireless transmission more. Transmitted over the air, these communications could, if the codes were known, be listened into and the enemy's intentions deduced and the British made great steps forward in understanding the codes. The other great legacy of the Battle of Heligoland Bight was a shift in posture from the Germans. Moving to a more defensive approach, they mined the western approaches to Heligoland and ordered their cruisers to retire when faced with British ships. Whilst this new policy effectively protected German shipping from harm, it meant that the Germans were now effectively enforcing the British blockade on themselves. The German policy of limited action, coupled with successful signals interception and leaps in decoding capability on the British side, meant that the British found themselves in the happy position where they would generally have advance warning of German forays out of their bases. The question was, what would they do with this advantage? The self-enforced blockade didn't last long as Ingenol, commanding the high seas fleet, argued that torpedo boats and submarines were unlikely to achieve the attrition against the Royal Navy that the Germans needed. Instead, 
He argued that heavier ships should be employed against sections of the British Navy, defeating them piecemeal, and so change the balance of power in the North Sea. To this end, a new strategy emerged, that of raiding the exposed eastern coastline of Britain in an attempt to lure out parts of the British fleet and defeat them. How much of Ingenol's argument was based on a true assessment of the situation, and how much was based on a desire to use the great capital ships is unclear, but one thing was true. This new approach tapped into a deep-seated British fear. It's hard to imagine now, but in the run-up to the First World War, the fear of invasion had been a constant consideration in both popular culture, with the success of a rash of invasion novels, and in military planning circles. Whilst the Navy declared it could deal with a larger invasion that would rely on the massed shipping an invader would need to employ to ship their army and all its supplies across the Channel, the residual threat of smaller raids that would be harder to detect remained. To protect against this eventuality, it was agreed that a minimum army force must be maintained within the British Isles for home defence. However, as the situation on the continent developed and it became apparent that the army required the vast majority of its manpower there, the defensive force was denuded. To cover this gap, the navy was forced to spread ships along the coastline of Britain with a battle squadron and cruisers at Rosyth, pre-dreadnoughts at Sheerness and other shipping on the Tyne, the Wash, the Humber and the Thames. As a result of this dispersal, when the Germans switched their tactics to try and fight fractions of the British fleet, the fractions they hoped to destroy were conveniently in place. Following the defeat of Admiral Sir Christopher Craddock's squadron at Coronel on the 1st of November 1914, the Admiralty had decided to send the battle cruisers HMS Inflexible and HMS Invincible from British waters to help in the hunt for the German squadron that had humiliated Craddock's force. Now the Germans had an opportunity. In the absence of these battleships, the balance of power in the North Sea swung from a clear British advantage towards both sides having similar numbers, with the British having 17 dreadnoughts against the Germans 15 and four battlecruisers each. And now the Germans saw an opportunity to conduct raids on the British coastline, sallying out across the North Sea to bombard coastal towns while mine layers laid a new minefield as a trap for any pursuing British ships. On the 3rd of November, while mines were laid off the coast of Lowestoft, Britain's most easterly point, Ingenol's ships shelled the nearby town of Great Yarmouth. A sluggish response from the British emboldened the Germans to repeat the operation, but this time in force, bringing their high seas fleet out in support. News came that the British had defeated the Germans at the Battle of the Falklands in the South Atlantic on the 8th of December, and this meant that the balance of power in the North Sea was likely to shift back in favour of the British. With time against them, the pressure on the Germans to act mounted, but Ingenol was unwilling to proceed without one of his ships, the Von der Tann, which was undergoing repairs. On the 14th of December, Room 40 at the Admiralty, Britain's intelligence and code-breaking hub, warned that Hipper's battlecruisers were likely to venture out into the North Sea the following day. This report, whilst accurate, omitted the information that the battleships of the High Seas Fleet would also be coming out in support. Partially forewarned, Jellicoe intended to bring the complete Grand Fleet out to meet the enemy, 
but he was prevented from doing so by the Admiralty, who thought that this was overkill. Instead, they planned to use Beatty's battle cruisers, Warrender's second battle squadron, and Goodenough's second light cruiser squadron to intercept the Germans as they returned from their raid. The whole force was to rendezvous in the North Sea, lying in wait for the Germans. However, unbeknownst to them, the German High Seas fleet was in the same area. First contact between the fleets was made at 5.25am on the 16th of December, when destroyers under Warrender's command encountered the High Seas fleet's escorts. Ingenol's initial reaction was to assume that Warrender's smaller ships were in turn acting as an escort for the Grand Fleet itself. Fearful of this, he turned his ships to the southeast at 5.42, heading away from the non-existent threat. Warrender reported his contact to Beatty, but the reports were incomplete and confused. Acting on these reports, Beatty plotted a course to intercept the Germans, but it was inaccurate. This error saved Beatty from running into the high seas fleet, which would have outgunned his force. The German Admiral Hipper, commanding the raiding force, now headed for home, charting a course back to Germany across the minefields and the shallower water around the Dogger Bank, which is an area of shallower water in the middle of the North Sea, heading for a gap in the minefields that had been laid east of the town of Whitby, and in worsening visibility, Hipper headed for home. At 11.25am, Goodenough, commanding the 2nd Light Cruiser Squadron, reported contact with a light cruiser and some destroyers. In fact, he had found the 2nd German scouting group that was equipped with three light cruisers. On board HMS Southampton, Goodenough prepared for battle, but was seemingly ordered to break off the contact when Beatty sent a badly worded command, Light cruisers resume your position for lookout, failing to specify that this applied to only two of Goodenough's cruisers, and was intended to widen the search area for the German fleet, and didn't apply to Southampton and Birmingham, who should stay engaged with the enemy they'd already found. Now Hipper, having seen the contact from Goodenough's cruisers, turned southeast in the hope that the British cruisers would not find the first scouting group's light cruisers. Warrender's battleships were the next to encounter the enemy, but Warrender didn't issue an order to open fire. Hipper now turned north, hoping to draw off Warrender's battle squadron. Hipper was now through the British interception forces and heading for home. The raid had been a confusing mess, and both sides had failed to communicate and manoeuvre effectively. The Germans had successfully shelled British coastal towns, killing 122 civilians and wounding 443, an affront that went completely unanswered, as the British, with a superior force, and forewarned about the enemy presence, had failed to punish the attackers. But the outcome could have been much worse for the British. Beatty's force had been spared a potentially dangerous encounter with the German high seas fleet. Importantly, there were two key failings on the British side. Firstly, the speed at which intelligence from Room 40 at the Admiralty was relayed to Jellicoe was so slow that by the time it arrived, it was so out of date as to be dangerous, useless or both. Secondly, deficiencies in communication and signalling were painfully apparent. Despite the obvious confusion, in the aftermath of the encounter, nothing was done about these two issues. The only real change that took place was to bring Beatty's battle cruisers down from Scarpa Flow to Ross Ith, where they'd be better placed to deal with any future raids. On the German side, frustrations with the British distant blockade strategy continued to drive naval policy. 
the Germans still needed to defeat parts of the British fleet to try and change the balance of power, and unless the British could be encouraged out to fight, this was never going to happen. In discussion with the Kaiser, Admiral Pohl argued that the high seas fleet should be given greater latitude to conduct offensive operations, even if this came with risks. The Kaiser reluctantly agreed and loosened restrictions a little, setting the scene for the next German expedition that resulted in the Battle of Dogger Bank. And on that cliffhanger, we leave it for this week. That brings us to the end of our preamble to the Battle of Dogger Bank. Hope you found it good, uh, and we'll uh, be back for the second episode uh, where we'll actually get into the battle and uh, what happened. Um, hope you've enjoyed this. Once again, uh, leave a like, review, subscribe, all that stuff. Uh, be greatly appreciated. And uh, look forward to you being there at the next episode. Thanks a lot. Bye.